Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everybody, to You Have Permission. I am here with two of my close personal friends, Tyson Motzenbacher and John Van Dusen. This is the inaugural episode of something I would like to do a bunch more of. It's kind of, you could think of it as the flip side to the I Don't Believe in That God episodes, and they are called Still Christian, or as I might refer to them colloquially, Still Krish. And uh, the idea is to talk with people who are remain Christian. They identify as Christian, despite the fact that these are people, especially if they are in, broadly speaking, my circles, many, many of their friends no longer identify as such. And I'm curious why. I want to set the whole thing up here by telling a little story, which was the idea for this whole miniseries. So it's really great to have the two of you here. We were at Tyson's wedding. Uh, it was not your wedding, right? It was your reception a couple years later because you got married during COVID, Tyson. Yes. And uh, the guy who was emceeing the whole event came up to a, a a group of three of us. It was John, myself, and one other person who I don't remember was there. And he said, John, can you pray for the food? Because you're the only person here who's still a Christian. Now, this was <laughs> this was a joke because the person who asked him is himself a minister, but he was already doing the emceeing. But I was like, what am I, chopped liver, buddy? I'm, I'm on the record here publicly. To be honest, I didn't I didn't know you were still a Christian until you asked me to do this. Me? I was like, I know you're an evangelical thought leader, but I don't know if you're a Christian. (laughs) Uh, This is only my second podcast back from paternity leave, so I'm still shaking off some rust, but I'm glad to be here with two real life friends as I do it. John and Tyson, welcome. Is this like, you're putting this on like the varsity, you have permission. I figured you would just like delegate us to Patreon. First of all, how dare you insinuate that patrons get lower quality content, Tyson? I resent that, and so do they. No, this is main feed, bro. <laughs> this is not just main feed. This is inaugural miniseries episode. So Amazing. pressure's on. Uh, John's been on before. Tyson, you haven't actually been on 
you have permission, which is partly my fault for not being able to schedule you anywhere near the release of your book when the waves turn back. But that might come up. Both musicians, you guys play in a band together called Telephone Friends. You each also have your own solo careers. I'm a huge fan of all three of those projects. And the other thing I want to say, just to kind of put it out in the air, as I've been thinking about this, who's, you know, why are people still Christian? It's funny. I have not found myself thinking about philosophers or theologians nearly as much as I found myself thinking about artists of some kind or another. And so I hope and I imagine that that will come up at some point in this conversation. I do think it's fitting to start out with a couple musical artists. If someone asks you or if you are thinking about being a Christian, what does that word mean to you? What would it mean to not be one anymore when your friends leave? What does that mean to you that they are like, I don't identify as a Christian well, interestingly, when I met John, he was, as as one might say, not a Christian. <laughs> it's true. How many years did you not identify as a Christian, John? Well, I think an honest answer there is that I, I didn't really know how to define being a Christian, being raised in the church, being raised with missionary parents. I think... I just maybe had a cultural idea of Christianity. I don't know if you if you had asked me when I was younger, are you a Christian? I, I probably would have said yes, even though I didn't really even know what, what that meant. Even to myself, I was just so preoccupied with my own life. There was probably a couple of years I, I took a, a intro to philosophy course at a community college where I started obviously reading. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just having been a philosophy major and like growing up evangelical, that's just like, that's literally in the setup for an evangelical horror story. But then yes. my son, he took a, he took a philosophy course at the local yeah. community college and it was all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's true though. Basically questions were posited at me that I didn't have answers for. Of course. Of course. And yeah. then my flimsy foundation of belief crumbled and I had yeah. to be intellectually honest with myself. And I realized like, oh, I actually don't know what I believe and probably haven't known my entire life. Right. I was okay with that. I mean, it, it created some tension in within me, but in general, there were a few years where I would have said, yeah, I don't know what I believe or I don't know if there's a God and, and then maybe kind of floated towards being agnostic and recognizing that I didn't think the universe could just exist haphazardly found my way back to a Judeo-Christian belief, like a very vague one through reading some books and having some, I don't know, I guess what you'd call spiritual experiences, but it wasn't until maybe 2012, 2013 that I feel like at least in my personal experience, I acknowledged intellectually and emotionally and spiritually, I guess, what I was and I was a Christian. Like, oh, I actually believe this. This seems to um, have actual power and staying power in my own life, in my own mind. And I was witnessing others experiencing a similar kind of power. And so, yeah, I don't know how else to say it. There's probably like four or five years where I was teetering back and forth and not really knowing what I believed. My only period of, I think, saying to people, yeah, I don't, I don't identify as a Christian right now, was during my philosophy undergrad period. And I, I honestly think I also was quite depressed. I think it only lasted about six months. And then I kind of found my way back to a, a kind of Christianity that felt good to me like pretty quickly. But otherwise, I've basically continued to identify as a Christian. My thing is, I don't know, probably 80% of the world's Christians would not count me, would not want me in their tribe, uh, but it's not up to them. And so I still do identify as Christian. Tyson, have has there been a period where you didn't or is yours uh, closer to to sort of my story? So after I graduated from high school, I went to I went straight to a Bible school in Germany. Uh, it's a torchbearer school called Bodenseehof. I didn't know this at the time, but it's it's very Calvinist and it's a lot of like kind of the utter depravity and like you are giant, you are giant piece of shit. I had an amazing experience there actually. Like I, I, I think that like one of the, one of the things for me that is, that is I maybe unique is that I never felt damaged by anything. Like 
I had really great experiences with all of the Christian institutions my whole life. Like my, you know, I did a young life in high school, which I had an amazing experience with, and I'm still friends with those people. I was involved with like my youth group at my Southern Baptist church. And that was like an amazing experience. And then I went to this really kind of rigid Calvinist. I don't think they would call themselves Calvinists, but that's how I read it. School in Germany. And that was, I had an amazing experience there. And then I went to a Presbyterian college called Whitworth, which is where I met John. Not, he didn't go there, but he was being in an indie rock band in Spokane sometimes. So that's how I met mm-hmm. him. Whitworth was a much looser and, and, and a much more academically and kind of intellectually honest approach to it, I think. The thing was that all five of those things that I was involved with were kind of actively trying to deconstruct me in a way. They were trying to deconstruct the things that had come before in order to like present me with the one true truth, you know? Mm. And what that did for me was that also not to mention that I was, I was a missionary kid. I lived in Haiti when I was five. So like at a Methodist mission. And every time you kind of go from one little thing to the other, it's you kind of, you know, the people are like, hey, welcome. Finally, you're you're here at the place where the truth is. <laughs> where we and, really know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a certain point where I was like, I love all the people in all of these little places. And like, they're all so sure that their very specific prescription of this belief is, is the thing. And at, at Whitworth, one of the first things they do is they put you through this program called Core 150. It's like you do it when you're a freshman and it's just, it's just a history of the church. It's like, Basically, this there was this one guy called Jesus, and he kind of came. And then after that, in the you know the coming two thousand years after that, there were this is the the five hundred ways that people took that that teaching and and made it into a system. And and like you know you got the Desert Fathers, and you got the Eastern Orthodox, and you've got the Catholics, and you've got all the Presbyterian, all the or all the Protestants, and you've got the Greeks, and you've got people in China and South America, and they all sort of look at it differently. And I think it, like for me, it was, it was just this evolution of kind of like allowing it to be more and more and more flexible as I went through sort of like varyingly rigid systems. Um, and that was, I think, really actually quite helpful for me was like just seeing that there were a lot of people that I respected and a lot of people that I really liked that were very rigidly looking at something that I was like, well, if it can't, it can't be all of these. Right. They're mutually exclusive. That makes me think that you and I had a similar experience at a similar age and therefore cognitive development level, right? Like our late teens and early 20s, kind of like a little bit of an inoculation, almost a vaccine against faith communities that would insist upon their own narrow exclusivity. Yeah. And be able to kind of call bullshit on that aspect of it and and yet have already seen the beauty in Christianity, right? Yes. Maybe even a couple versions of it. And then to be kind of inoculated against that narrow exclusivism. John, would you say that you had a similar thing there of kind of seeing the breadth of things when you kind of made it your own? That would have been uh, maybe a decade later, right? So maybe in your more in your late 20s or something like that. Well, I think growing up, I didn't really have an experience at home or in church that felt hyper exclusive. It could have been because I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but I also think my family, my parents didn't really create an environment where it felt, anyways, it didn't feel super rigid growing up. So maybe I was kind of like trained already to have a more ecumenical view of the world. Wasn't your dad like a mainline pastor? Am I remembering that wrong? I mean, my dad worked at um, various different churches for various different denominations, including PCUSA. Well, there you go. Baptist, all these different non-denoms. Yeah. The mission organization he worked for was very old school, but worked with indigenous people. And at least by the time my dad was working with them... They had a more flexible view of culture in general because obviously it was like a big um, response to kind of the atrocities that Christian missions committed against indigenous people at large, you know, trying to like suck the culture out of them and, you know, unlearn unlearn the language and all of that. And so there was a, a swing to correct that. But I think by the time I started having real Christian experience and wondering about my beliefs, I felt pretty 
isolated in that. I didn't have a lot of Christian community and it just became deeply personal. And so maybe my perspective at that point, when I, when I began to think, no, I actually do believe this, this crazy thing feels real to me. I just kind of maybe shaped it within my own mind. Like there wasn't a lot of other outside. I wasn't like reading lots of books or really even going to church that much. I'd come home from tour and go to church, but it wasn't maybe shaping me very much. It was shaping like little ideas like within me, but I didn't have a lot of outside influence. It sounds like John, your experience is distinct from Tyson and I's. It it sounds like for Tyson and I, when we think about what Christianity means, even back then, the lens was pretty wide because we were aware of all this stuff. I mean, you to some degree must have been because of your dad being in different uh, roles, but it also sounds like you weren't paying as much attention in those years. And it's only later that you kind of really paid attention. And so it was more about you made it your own in this kind of like almost opaque to the outside world, like deeply personal kind of way that we might imagine an artist would would do would kind of make something their own is that right yeah it was pretty insulated and the catalyst was looking inward and realize, realizing i didn't like what, what i was seeing so it wasn't like i was viewing christendom at large or reading about church history or i wasn't reading you know a case for christ or I wasn't even really seeing other people's lives transformed the way the evangelical narrative was hoping I would see. Mm-hmm. For me, yeah. it was like, oh, I don't love who I am. I'm actually kind of afraid of who I am. And that then prompted me to look a little deeper and kind of set me off on this path of exploration. It's just like Tyson pointed out, very individualistic like I was given agency to choose and my parents didn't really feel comfortable with me wearing my deftone sweatshirt at the Baptist church they went so they sincerely were like well where do you want to go deeply personal and it's funny because when I was pondering this question like why am I still a Christian because most of my friends many of my friends have left Christianity and Historically, just had non-Christian friends, unchristian friends. What's what's the correct term there? Actually, I don't yeah, know. Non-Christian, I guess. Doesn't or, matter. Yeah, non-religious. Um, People experiencing unchristianity. <laughs> oh yeah. <my> gosh. <laughs> but my answer, I actually had somebody ask me this at a show in San Diego recently. Why are you still a Christian? Which I thought was interesting. My answer is because it has worked for me. Hmm. Like it's worked. You ask anybody who has known me for 15 years. Ask, you know, if Annababe, my wife, came in and we interviewed her, she would have by far the best perspective on why I'm still a Christian, because I am just not the same person. So it actually has worked in my experience in a way that is hard for me to deny. So I've kind of come to a conclusion that is essentially, if it is just like neuroscience, if it is just brain and personality and et cetera... Okay. Okay. But it has worked. So I'm wagering on that, but it doesn't cause me some deep, like, dread. I don't feel existential dread due to that, like, oh, I, I guess I could be wrong, but even if I am wrong, it's working. So it doesn't really matter to me that much. The time that I saw John in between this sort of transformation, he was looking at an iPad at the University of San Diego, I'm assuming on at least three drugs. <laughs> I don't know. Most likely one, but yeah. But possibly, he like couldn't... Possibly he two. Like, yeah, he like couldn't make eye contact with me. And then like five years later, I saw John and he was like a different person, mm. was, which is amazing. I like John when he was on pills too, but, but uh, I think he's better now. <laughs> That pragmatism, John, is is going to end up being pretty similar to kind of my own answer to this question. The part that I feel even more kind of aligned with is the what I call like a modified Pascal's wager. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So so Pascal's wager, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Blaise Pascal, I think he's a 17th century philosopher. And was he also like a he like in, was a mathematician. I think he invented yeah. some like geometry stuff. But his whole thing, which, you know, obviously 17th century, very different time than today. And what he said was, look, you can either be right or wrong and you can either commit to this or not. It's like a four quadrant, you know, there are four possibilities. If you commit to Christianity and you're right, that's like the best possible reward. You, you're in heaven and you were right. If you commit to Christianity and you're wrong and there is no God or whatever, well, you know, that's not nearly as bad as if you reject it and you're wrong, then that's eternal hell. That's the worst possible thing. And if you reject it, but you're right, well, you're great. You got it correct, but you're, you're just going to cease to be. Yeah, you get to be right. Well, the the like on the one side, it's like, well, your whole reward is that you get to be right, which I think is kind of funny that that's like because yeah. he's a math. He like, as far as I know, he created the like the the theory of probability. Like he was like one of the first like statisticians or whatever. Oh, interesting. But, um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, that was the thing that was so funny was that like that's the big reward if you're an atheist is that you get to be right. Yeah, which I'm sure for 17th century atheists felt like a real fitting. Uh, kind of a characterological trait, but what, of course, people today and and in many you know centuries since then will will rightly say about Pascal's wager is that does not produce Christian faith, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think we could think about someone like Soren Kierkegaard who talks about when you know in his day in Denmark, you're born into Denmark citizenship as you become a Christian. Right. It's like it is it is such a meaningless concept in in many of those cultures that that like Pascal's wager. And anyway, just like being afraid of hell does not make you a faithful person making a mathematical risk reward assessment, much like the manager of a hedge fund would do. That's not the faith of Abraham. Right. Like that's not that is not religious faith. But the way that I kind of tweak that. And so I'm not, I'm not claiming as nor would you, John, that, that this kind of way that we're thinking has that same sort of uh, risk reward thing that Pascal was saying, but it's like, Hey, I'm going to live my life this way. It works. It's making me uh, a better person. It is connecting me to the things that I love about the world and myself and the people in my life. And if I end up being wrong about the sort of metaphysical, you know, the theological parts of it. Well, what was the cost? There wasn't a cost. I ended up becoming more the person I wanted to become. And then that's the reward. The next life thing has almost no weight for, for me. It's almost a non-factor. When did it stop being one? Because I imagine growing up, you know, roughly similar to the way I grew up, it was certainly would have been taught to you. It would have been this kind of big, I don't know, I don't want to necessarily call it a carrot, you know, but, but this kind of big yeah. expectation, man, there's so much there. I, the, one yeah. of the, one of the main thoughts I have is that like the way that the, the church kind of kept people in line for a very long time was this, like, there was the fear of hell, right? It was like, even like the selling of indulgences and stuff. It's like, that's how you keep people in line is that you've got this giant pit of fire. And if you trip, you're going to fall in there. But it was this thing where it was like, all you got to kind of do is get them to say the prayer and then they're saved. Like, you know, it's, and I'm sure there's some verse that where Jesus said, like, you know, probably something along the lines of like, but like at once you've been saved, you can't be lost or whatever it is. I was like, well, okay. I said the prayer, so I'm good. I can't fall into the big pit of fire now anymore, which is good. The big thing for me was this, was this realization that like God as actually as an artist, this is interesting. Cause like, I like to make stuff with my, I like to make stuff out of wood and I like to write books and make records and stuff as all of both of you are people that make lots of things, especially especially John is like one of the more prolific artists I've ever met. Extremely prolific. And uh, this idea that like God could make something so incredible and so ornate and and, and, and intricate. And like, you know, I mean like, like my wife is studying the heart right now and like the way the heart works is like unbelievable. Like it's the heart is more incredible than any computer that anyone's ever made. It's, it's this thing that is magic. And this idea that God can like make that and put that level of thought and 
craftsmanship into creating a universe and then not have any responsibility to what happened afterwards. Um, as an artist, it's like, man, if I made a bad thing, that's my fault. Like I made it, you know, if I, if I build a thing out of wood and then it breaks, it's like, it's not the wood thing's fault. It's my fault. I made it. I'm, I am the architect. You know what I mean? And there was this thing later on that was like, yeah, that, that for me was actually a huge sort of linchpin in my, in my faith was this thing of thinking of God as a creator. It's like, there's an enormous responsibility in the artist, in the creator, in the architect, right? Like they are in charge. It's like the, there's the classic example of like that library in New York where the architect made this really fancy, like brutalist architecture. And then he didn't account for the weight of books. So like never heard that. Yeah. The library can't, (laughs) couldn't, it couldn't, you couldn't put any books in it. I love that. That's a great, that's a great metaphor. It's great because it's like, well, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It's like not the library's fault. Like the library is made, made to hold books. It's like, if it doesn't hold the weight of the books, it's a failed library. You know right. what I mean? And like, yeah. and like a counter arguments that would be like, well, you know, there's, there's free will and something that's forced to love doesn't really love. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like the, the cost is too high. Yeah. The cost of existing, if that's the way we're thinking about it, is too high. And I'm not even trying to make a, make a case here for like, like some Rob Bell, like love wins or like hell isn't real or anything like that. I don't really know what that means. I just know that you can't make something and not be held responsible for it. So for me, it's like, man, I, I don't, once I realized that I was like, well, if God loves me and made me, I don't really have anything to be afraid of. Cause like he loves me and made me. And so I'm his fault, you know? Like at the end of the day, I, my, my thing is, especially with like the limited perspective that I have into the world, it's like so limited. I, I can see so little, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, like when you look at the you've got people over here that believe this and people over here believe this and they were all given the same textbook and they all believe different stuff and they all have different ways of going about it. And that doesn't mean that like it's wrong. It just means that it's a lot more flexible. And I think that what that's done for me is it's made me way more of a mystic. It's like, mm. it's way less of like, I have to hold on to this thing in order to not fall into this big pit full of fire because like none of us really know what's going on and it. Maybe it's a lot bigger than that. Maybe it's a lot more important than that. I want to jump in on, on something you said there. So this idea of God, essentially, if God made us this way and then we act this way, then, then God's a part of that. Like that particular argument David Bazan, who is Pedro the Lion, a major musical figure in all three of our lives, I, I would I would hazard to guess. In I think it's 2012, he puts out his kind of breakup album with God, Curse Your Branches, and there's a song in it uh, called When We Fell, and it's really kind of talking about this thing, uh, Tyson. I'm going to read the lyrics here. He's talking about the garden. You know, that record in in some sense, it's obviously artistic. I think if you take it straight up as arguments, there some of them are kind of straw man arguments, but the difficulty in making philosophical arguments work as in lyrics, pop songs yeah. <laughs> is obviously there are... impossible, an impossible feat. Yeah. Uh, and as a piece of art, it is incredible. But but the final lyrics of When We Fell is if you knew what would happen and made us just the same, then, then you, you, my, my Lord, Lord, can take the blame. Can take the yep. blame, right? And the uh, and that really does work against a kind of Calvinist, you know, total depravity. We are fully responsible for our own descent to hell unless you know God yeah. saves us. And it's bizarre, kind of being like that doesn't really make sense. It, it's very similar to what you're saying. What's interesting here is that that exact argument is part of what takes Bazan out of Christianity. And yet for yeah. you, that exact argument kind of is able to preserve a, well, a Christian understanding that's not toxic. Interestingly, I had an argument with a pastor about that very verse. Mm. I, I lo- that record, like I could, I, I might be able to quote that whole record. It's yeah, very same. important to me. And um that uh, I remember, yes, if you know what happened, made us the same, you, my Lord, take the blame. And basically this pastor's argument back to me was that he did take the blame by sending Jesus. Well, which I, I took thought the blame was a, for some thought, of us. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was like, it's a, it's a pretty interesting way of thinking about it, which is yeah. that like, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I and, and frankly, like this is the case, I, I'm guessing this is the case for John with the things that he said, but like I am every year that goes by in my life, I am less interested in having intellectual 
theological conversations. I like, I just don't care. Like I, for me, it's, it's like, fine. I guess we'll just, I'll just go myself and we'll turn (laughs) off the episode. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I, like, I I am really, I am very, I'm, I'm, I'm saying like the sort of, like an interesting, an interesting one that just came out. There's that guy, uh, uh, his name is Ravi Zacharias. You remember that guy? Yes. I know all about him. So he was like this Christian apologist that came out. Did you hear about this, John? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Bad ombre. Uh, our a guy in our band, Matt, who plays keys, he like grew up like just really around this guy, like in Atlanta, going to all. That's the, right, because yeah. he was based in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, and ba- yeah. So the he's just a, a one of the kind of like super apologists. That's like you know yeah. he's really doing the all the all of the Pascal's wagers, but like times a thousand. And it's just, but it turns out that he was like molesting women. Yeah, he's really so bad it's dude. it's this thing that's like for me like I don't I don't it's so rare that I see this kind of like intellectual exercise leading to actual spiritual experience. Like, I think that they're almost divorced from one another. It's like, I think that you can have like, and I know Dan, probably that's one of the ways that you and I differ the most is that like you, you, I think you find a lot of spiritual meaning in the, in ideas, which I really appreciate that about you. But for me, and I don't, I would love John to weigh in on this, but for me, like I find it all through this idea that like, almost through the surrendering of myself, this idea that like, I can't really know it. Like I can't understand it. And and in fact, like I even see that through, through history. Like if you go through, like we went pre-modernist to modernists, which was like this idea that we could understand into post-modernism, which is that like, whoa, we couldn't, it's like, to me, it's just like, we couldn't figure it out. Like the more we learned about the human body, the less we understood, the more we learned about space, the more space we discovered. It's like, there has to be something that there has to be meaning beyond what you can understand. I have a song called Sunday morning, which is basically pushing back against this idea that emotionalism is, is a true experience of God. And I don't know if it's an emotional thing either. It's, it's way more of like a, a sense of, of, of wonder and bigness and like this, 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 like a place in the world that is like kind of inconsequential. And then, and also meanwhile, being kind of held by a creator that is, that cares, like that, that like is, is in control, I guess. I like talking about theology and I love talking about Jesus because it's the most important thing in my world. It, because it has worked and continues to work and because Christianity and my experience has delivered on all of its promises for me, even amidst all of the things that I don't understand and the areas in Christian belief where I, where I have to, you know, surrender to the mystery of unknowing or uncertainty, it's still really lovely to talk about. And so I enjoy having these types of conversations, but I think I hear what you're saying and it, and I do relate. If Tim Keller rose from the grave and was sitting here and trying to convince me of being a Christian, I would likely hear a lot of what he has to say and think, wow, those are really good points. And you've thought long and hard about this and you're obviously so much smarter than me. And you're thinking, you're thinking through our existence as if it was a chess match and you're like five moves ahead. That's how I feel often in these types of conversations. The same reason that like my atheist friends have never been able to convince me that God isn't real. And they give me all of these arguments. I'm like, okay, like, great. That, that seems all right. That makes some sense to me. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't, (laughs) but it, it has just not disqualified me from my belief And I should say, I came back to a belief in a higher power because of just ideas, questions. Like the intro to philosophy course, not to bring it back, but like it asked hard questions of me and my faith, but it actually didn't answer any of the questions for me. Yeah, totally. Like I, I was like, okay, you know, opiate for the masses or indeterminism or whatever, all of these like new concepts I hadn't really thought about, but they didn't answer anything for me. They didn't solve the like, um, just, I mean, it's really basic stuff, but like, Oh, colors and flowers and music and people and brains and hearts and, and infinite space and the law of gravity and all these different things. Like I, I genuinely was led to a belief in a higher power by asking questions of those things and like Mm -hmm. looking at the natural world and seeing the like, um, intricacy, but also the innate symbolism that I believe God has like 
embedded into our existence. I am also probably most best defined as a Christian mystic because spiritual experience with the tenets of Christianity and scripture and even at like worship services and, you know, name all of the ways in which people experience God within the foundations of Christianity. I I keep having those. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of spurs me on. And like, I've tried to walk away. Now I haven't like gone and done heroin and then visited a, uh, a Buddhist, um, you know, enclave in the mountains of Japan and said, this is it for me. I'm going to give the next 10 years of my life. And if God brings me back, then he's real. I'm not, I'm not saying I've done right. some extreme rendition of walking away, but I've tried to be intellectually honest and I just keep getting uh, harnessed back in or as, as if I am harnessed. I'm just, I can't mm-hmm. ditch it because yeah, of my spiritual yeah. experience. I, I feel similarly to Tyson where I don't feel unsafe. Like when I think about the cosmos and the fact that we're on this planet that's spending, spending like thousands of miles per hour and like gravity is a thing and people yeah. die and people are born and like I can hold my infant daughter and she can like look at me. Like I feel safe within that. I, I, I just I feel like there's also something that you're saying, which is like a, a lot of like the inconsequential like nature of the of of me. It's like. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if this is so true and it is so big, like my ideas actually aren't that important really, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that makes, if that makes sense, John, that's what I, I'm hearing a lot. Yeah, perhaps. And I mean, I've never felt some crazy desire to tell everybody in the world about Jesus. But what I have experienced is that the more I think about Jesus, the more I talk about Jesus, the more I experience this crazy mystery that Jesus represents and talked about the healthier I feel and the more beautiful my experience gets. So then I've just assumed that that then will make the world a better place. So if I'm, if that's like my evangelicalism, it's like, if there's an evangelist in me, it's that the more I surrender to this idea, the healthier I feel and the more I love people and the less I judge people. And my wife thinks I'm more patient and like, et cetera. Like I could talk about it for hours And I just have seen what I have been in the moments where I am like ruling my own life and it sucks. It was the worst. And even today I have these like micro experiences where like I'm clearly trying to, you know, rule my existence and I feel tyrannical. Like me as master of my own life has been tyrannical. Like I am a tyrant over my own self. This is how I explain it to myself. But in the moments where I'm surrendering to this crazy, mysterious idea that I I truly don't understand, I find myself being just all these things I never thought I could be. It makes me emotional. So anyways, my point is, I, I, I genuinely believe that if, and this is why I'm still a Christian, if the whole world could surrender in that way to what I've experienced, like what I kind of think of as the Sermon on the Mount teachings, I, I, I actually like have thought through all the other answers that have been given to the world to solve the world. And that still is like, even just on paper, the best thing I have found. So a really good and obvious idea, I think that I, for whatever reason, did not have when I was recording this episode with John and Tyson was to put together a playlist of some of my favorite songs of each of theirs, uh, including Telephone Friends, their band together, and a little bit of uh, Lonely Forest, John's old band as well. So there is a playlist up on Spotify that's public. There's a link in the show notes of this episode if you want to go hear some of their music. And we'll just use this as a time to talk about the Patreon. Of course, you can go to patreon.com slash dancoke. Seven bucks a month gets you access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that are not available, at least in their full form, on the main feed, as well as you get ad-free versions of all of the main feed episodes. You get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. And, you know, it's just a great little community. So if you want to support the show financially, support me, I very much appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke.
people that would consider themselves Christian, that would identify as Christian, are 45% more likely to do volunteer work. They're 43% more likely to gather with extended family. They're 33% more likely to give to the poor, to donate money at time or goods. Their charitable donations per person are almost $1,000 a year more than person than persons with no re- religious affiliation. Like, the, you can go down the line here, but basically it's just like, the the numbers are that like people that basically have decided that like they're going like and I'm not saying like I, there's a lot of reasons for that like that maybe are good and bad mm-hmm. but like one of the things that I was the most when I when I lived in Europe and you go to all these church these empty cathedrals right they're empty and they're giant and they're beautiful and it's so like uh, you know there there's one on every corner in in Europe and they're all made to have you know between five hundred and two thousand people in them and there's 12 old late little old ladies in there praying. And like something that I came to early on too, is this idea that like, man, I don't know what gets people in there. And maybe the things that get them in there are, are bad. Like, you know, maybe it's fear, the fear of hell and shame. It's a mix. Yeah. Maybe the reasons are bad, um, which I fully admit, but like, I think that the practice of it is good. Like, that's the thing that scared me so, so much when I was kind of, I, there was a long period of time where I was like definitely resorting my beliefs. Like I was moving things around and I remember being really afraid that like, if we lost this, it would be like, just, just for whatever reason, like the practice of people getting together in a room once a week and looking upward and like saying, who do we want to be? Where do we want to go? What is my place in this enormous world like what is like trying to connect with something that is divine and enormous like that's that is just good it's good for people it's good for society it's good for the world mm-hmm. and like i think as like as empirically it's more and more difficult to s- answer these types of questions i do tend to return to like well what's the best way to live <laughs> you know what i mean that was like to your pascal's wager dan right like, yeah what's the best way to live i think if i am to be honest with you guys and myself and with god there are a couple areas of Christian doctrine where I have had to just say, I don't know. It gives me a little bit of assurance, which is a really interesting idea. But that, for example, you know, one of the questions that really disrupted me when I was 17, which I'm sure you guys asked yourself, asked yourselves as well, was, well, what about these indigenous people who lived on this island who never, ever once heard you know, this gospel that I was being um, fed. And the truth is, even now at 36, my answer is, well, I I think God exists. I believe in God. I've had experiences with God. I believe God is good. Even when um, I can't, you know, kind of wrestle an answer from like a question like that. And I just have kind of concluded that whatever God has decided for those people is good. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that answer on certain days. It's hard for me, especially when, um, cause I work in a church, I work in a non-denominational church where there's, there's a lot of language of saving the lost. Yeah. But that feels above my pay grade. Like, and I, and in my prayer life, we'll say to God, like, God, if you wanted me to come to a, a, a an epiphany of knowing in that regard, like I, I'm just trusting that he's going to take me there. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't happen, it doesn't, like my opinion of this thing doesn't change if there is a truth, an infinite truth involved, it doesn't yeah. change. Yeah. Like my opinion doesn't change that truth. So anyways, that one. And then the question of like the afterlife, my landing place in the last five years has been, I just think it's going to be good. And there are certain authors like C.S. Lewis who helped me see it in a new way. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that kind of those, the thought experiments of, of a personal hell of like, because I've experienced the tyranny of self, I know what happens the farther I go into a self-indulgent existence. Well, you know, there are moments in my life where I thought, well, maybe perhaps hell is something I don't understand where God just gives complete agency and this person just gets to kind of exist in some, <laughs> some paradigm where they're just on their own. And I don't really know what that looks like. It's the same with, like you said, Dan, like this idea that, well, if God created this reality, why couldn't God create other realities? Or why couldn't God create extraterrestrial life? Like that is not, I don't have to answer that for myself. Mm -hmm. Now, if the aliens from Halo descend upon our planet and start blasting people to smithereens, I will have to face that question, right? Yeah. But I'm just saying those are good examples of things that feel above my pay grade. Like Tim Keller couldn't argue me to belief in that, in that way. Yeah. 
even if there are times when an apologist makes a really good point, just like maybe a Sam Harris might make a good point. There's just incredibly smart people, but they're not doing it for me somewhere deep within me. So yeah. even like in regards to scripture, oh, this, this, uh, this author seems to have a different opinion than this author, or, oh, these numbers actually don't make sense from a, um, a literal perspective. Yeah. Or the garden narrative and the, cre- the seven day creation, like I can and have wrestled with those things and will continue to my entire life. And I just kind of trust that if God wants to bring me to an epiphany, he will. Do you guys think that Aslan will be in the afterlife? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I hope so too. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the afterlife thing is really, you know, getting more training in psychology has actually really challenged me on that stuff because what I have come to understand is that in this life, our conscious experience absolutely derives from our brains. Like it is located in our brains. And if you put something else, if you mess with someone's brain, it changes their experience of of conscious awareness and, and their thoughts and their feelings and all that stuff. Uh, their personality. Kenneth Miller, yeah. the the biologist, said, you know, the brain, like the best term he had for the brain is it's a chemical machine. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't have choices. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're like we're transitioning here to to awe and beauty and, and wonder and art. And, you know, it's not reducible, I don't think, to chemicals. That's not what I'm saying. But when the electricity stops flowing, when, when the blood stops flowing to my brain and the electricity is no longer being produced by my neurons or however that works, like I won't have the, the kind of conscious experience I have now. I may have some different kind of experience. There may be some veil through which then there's some other reality. And that's my hope. That's my hope as a theist. But in order to be honest with myself about pay grade stuff, I've had to be honest, like any, any version of that, that people give that looks just a lot like the human conscious experience. Like I, I just have to say maybe because we, we kind of know the, the biological basis here and now for that conscious experience. And we know that if you stick a metal spike through someone's head, it changes that conscious experience. It changes their personality if they stay alive. So I want to, I do want to transition though, because this brings us to, I think that the pay grade stuff dovetails really nicely with the question of awe and beauty. And I would say one of our great living theologians, Pope Francis, who, if people don't know, he is an actual theologian. He's written many, many books. He, he has his own kind of past as a theologian before he was uh, elected or chosen to be Pope. But when he talks about evangelism, what he has said, uh, and he's talking about the Catholic church, but you know, the same thing could apply. He says the way to reach the next generation is not through philosophy and theology. It is not through these things. It is through beauty and art and awe and wonder. And that that is actually where the church is on most solid ground. Now, Catholics do better than Protestants do, obviously, around the visual arts and these beautiful cathedrals you mentioned, Tyson, you know, littered throughout Europe. And there's more of an aesthetic sense to what to what they're up to, you know, them, Episcopals, Orthodox, other kind of high church traditions. But that's a narrow way of thinking about it, just about the liturgy and the church service. I think there's this larger sense that we've been talking about it, which is, hey, you you know, and and I think of it like somebody can tell me like a Robert Sapolsky, you know, his book Behave and he's all about there's no free will. And look, I I can break down this whole machine to you (laughs) and tell you why you do what you do and all this all this stuff. And I just go, okay, maybe. But I'm alive on a planet in a universe full of billions of galaxies, which each have billions of stars. And I get to hold my baby son and I get to kiss 
my wife. I have, I get to have sex. I get to listen to music. I get to write music. I get to watch films and look at mountains and I get to eat cheesesteaks, which slowly kill me and ripe honey crisp apples, which make me stronger. <laughs> like I get to do all this shit. And so, okay, maybe that description is yeah. correct, but also none of this could have been here and it is here and I get to do it. Totally. It's, it also just feels like that all feels like a, a grasping at control to me. It's like a lot of this it stuff feels be. like a grasping at control. But it's I, as a, as a, some kind of a scientist myself and maybe this yeah. small S it, you know, there's a fine line. A lot of people, and I would not doubt he is one of them get into that kind of work to help people as sure. we understand things better. We can be more helpful. I mean, that's certainly true as a therapist. Like I am, I totally. do want to kind of break down a lot of that mystery so that people can become less opaque to themselves and understand themselves better and have better lives and hurt people less and hurt themselves less. And so I, I don't, I don't want to impugn motives it, in that sense. You think that, um, like knowing more about science and brain chemistry is always good for people? No, not always, but there's a uh, lot of I cultures say, in the world that I think are probably faring pretty well because they don't concern themselves with a lot of these things that you're talking that's about. That's a it that is a a huge and totally necessary and fascinating question. Like for instance, you know, are we on the whole better with all the, you know, all of modern culture and science and all that stuff? Obviously there are costs. In a more narrow sense though, like I just took Stellan, who the the other day was one month old, to the doctor. And, you know, because he's having tummy troubles and he's maybe has infant reflux situations going on. And like in that more narrow sense, like I'm really glad that the pediatrician knows a lot about infant reflux because I want him to stop suffering every time that he eats. And I want, you know, I, I want his life to be better. And when a client comes to me that's struggling with anxiety and I notice some things about their thought processes that we can work on. Like, I'm glad to have that knowledge to be able to have some tools to work with them. Now, in the mm -hmm. large scale, would we all be better off as hunter gatherers? Maybe. But that's not again, that's above my pay grade. I'm here now in the, in the 21st century West kind of trying to help. Personally, while I, I allow myself to exist within the tension of mystery, like I believe in Jesus. Like I, I, there is something deep within me that feels this love and friendship connection with my God. And while I don't box that God in because I cannot, yeah, and I don't even try to speak about other people's religious experiences or pagan experiences mm -hmm. or yeah. et cetera, there is a certain level of exclusivity within me in regards to um, Jesus and, and the Judeo-Christian God that we have this name for, you know, Yahweh, whatever, how, mm -hmm. however we want to talk this through. So I just have to be clear, like I work at a non-denominational church because I believe it. Yeah. Because I believe it has something better to offer. Yep. And that would get me in a lot of trouble with a lot of people. Good thing nobody's going to hear this. <laughs> but if I was going to be honest with them, I would say that, no, I, I do believe that. Now, I'm not going to tell them that they're going to go to hell right. for not believing it because that's an area where it feels a little bit above my pay grade, right? Yeah. But I, I do, on, on some level, always want to say that to, to people when they ask. Like, I, I do believe there's something here and it's really beautiful and it's really powerful. Yeah. The narrative, the symbolism the spiritual experience, the mystery within the specific way of life and the things that this person said. Um, and, and, and even my belief in the deity of Christ. And like, so I should be, I, I just, I have to say that, like yeah, for the no, sake of this to, whole conversation, helpful. like I'm a Christian in that yeah. way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like you, like we already said, you'll be able to explore this and um, keep exploring it. I'll give mine answer real quick and then we'll let Tyson have the last word. And I've talked about it a little bit on some of those I don't believe in that God episodes. But when I say I'm a Christian, I just mean like I live Christianly. 
essentially. Even though I have way less confidence than most people who would consider themselves Christians about many of these specific faith claims, you know, the, the creedal claims, the various theological whatever, you know, the deity of Christ, for instance, I don't know. I, I honestly have, that's, that's increasingly feeling like given all the different ways people mean that it might be also beyond my pay grade entirely. But what I do know is that I use the language of the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of the Bible. I go to Christian church. I take the Eucharist. I find it helpful. I pray with my boys. I sing songs about God uh, with them. I plan to raise them Christian. And ultimately, the architecture of my spiritual life and my worldview owes too much to Christianity for me to say, yeah, I'm not a Christian, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not something else. <laughs> so like, and actually what I, what I, what I find myself coming more and more to is like, I'm about 65 years too late because I'm actually just sort of a mid century liberal mainline Protestant in the wrong decade. I'm like a <laughs> Paul Tillich kind of you know, this is the language we use for this ultimate concern. And, and like, who knows, uh, who knows if it's like capital T true, all the, you know, all these things like that's kind of more and more where I go, but it works. And so that's what I, your, your pragmatism stuff from the beginning, John is, is I, I find actually very much in line. I think temperamentally, I want to think through a lot more of the go further down some of those intellectual alleys than you do. I think you are more moved by the desire to create. You are more of an artist than me. I don't think I'm actually really an artist. I think I'm an artisan, uh, not an <laughs> artist. Uh, which You're artistanal. <laughs> artisanal. Uh, I, you know, so that, that's kind of my, my answer is it's a very, prag it's become a very pragmatic thing for me, but there still is tremendous mystery and beauty. And I, and I do have spiritual experience within that tradition. Tyson, what do you mean by Christian? The number one creed that I subscribe to is the band creed. No creed, but creed. That's <laughs> my <laughs> number one. So you're with arms wide open. Truly. That's how you feel. And you just I, want, you just want something that's going to take you higher. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We, and uh, that, like say, your sin is your own prison, right? <laughs> we know the way too much about is that band. That the band Creed has too much Christian content in the lyrics for that to be a clean joke. Also, they're that, they're a lot better than we give them credit. Do they rip? <laughs> I saw them. That was my first concert. Creed. <laughs> homie, homie, put his foot on the on the on the monitor so much it was sick. There's yeah. fire. I don't think I'm in. I don't think I'm in for this creed revisionism. Actually, they were good. I, I think I'm out on that. But Tyson, why don't you answer <gasps> the question in seriousness? You're on the wrong side of history, Dan. But that's okay. No. I mean, I I would say first of all that I do believe. Well, this is something that has been important to me lately. Is that I do believe in a capital T truth. I think there is something that is true, and I think that there is. I think that that thing exists and our access to that is limited. Um, but, but does, there are avenues to, I, it. I would, I would agree. Maybe we would place the limits differently or whatever, but sure. yeah, broadly speaking. Yeah. Sure. Um, and, uh, I think that like the, the place that I come back to a lot is, is the sort of the narrative arc of Christianity is something that I really, I really like resonate with, which is yeah. just the creation of the creation of man and earth and and all of the all of these things through a, a creator who then spends the next amount of time that it has existed trying to access that humanity and kind of seek seeking it re relentlessly through you know like all the way through the Old Testament through and then ultimately living to leading to Jesus who was the one that came to to try to connect that bridge as as much as possible. The thing you were talking about about your wife Haley studying the heart, I actually mm -hmm. think you know we think of evolution, survival of the fittest, you know, random genetic mutation and just, you know, billions of years, hundreds of millions of years of, of this, like, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, all the suffering, all the death, the food chain, all that stuff. We tend to think of that, you know, often in quite negative and bloody terms, right? But there is a yeah. relentlessness that yes. is literally baked in to the organic life process on this planet and probably any other planet 
that follows the laws of physics in this universe. And what it ends up doing is creating things like the human heart, which are just astonishingly well made and, and so well fit for their environment such that, you know, 99 out of a hundred hearts can kill it. They're so good, you know? And like, you know, then when we get older, we get heart disease and stuff, but like very few babies have heart issues. It's probably one in 500 or something, you know? So it's like it, there is a kind of a relentless, you could call it a pursuit if you think there's mind behind it in, in, or intentionality behind it. Right. Which I do. I think there is mind and intentionality. Go ahead, John. I just think that what you said about the narrative and the symbolism, like within the Christian story, but also within the natural world is one of the reasons I believe. So I, I, yeah. I, I like hearing you talk about it because I think we are narrative people yeah. and symbolic people. And there's an arts, arts connection too, right? I think there is something interesting about why am I wanting to talk with artists about this? Often I was- feel it in good art. I, I, it connects me to this stuff more than philosophy or theology or whatever. Before I went, before I got married, I went on one Tinder date with a very aggressive atheist who was very interesting actually. And she just kind of like, she found out that I was a Christian and she was kind of grilling me about it. And that, the, the, the thing that I just said, I was like, look, I I think these are all great, great points. (laughs) These are great points. I was like, one of the things that brings me back is like, you know, she was talking a lot about like opiate for the masses, John, and also just like everything that we see can kind of just go back to like basically Darwinian survival and there's no meaning in anything. And I was like, well, then why when I go surfing at sunset most days, there's always like 20 people sitting on the cliff looking at the ocean. Like there's no reason for them to do that. There's like, there's no, that's actually like, they're vulnerable in a Darwinian sense. Like they're sitting there with their backs turned to the land where all the, where all the monsters are. This is just because we're called to this thing that's beautiful. It's like, I think, I believe that like beauty is the thing that calls me away from this idea that we're just meat trying to protect itself. The way that I would frame that just briefly is they're both true. Yeah, totally. Uh, A lot of the things that I do as a human being are encoded into me from hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years biologically of meat trying to save itself from dying. And also some of the stuff that I do is at like evolution of biological life on this planet has gotten to the point where we actually have multiple strata. There are multiple Mm -hmm. layers of things going on and narrative is one of them. We have gotten to the point because of our cognitive ability to think about the past and think about the present Dogs don't tell stories to each other. Humans tell stories to each other. That's because in part, we have this ability cognitively to do so. But when I get lost in a great story, when I'm watching The Godfather and I see Michael Corleone's slow turn to evil and the beauty and precision with which Coppola and Puzo tell that story and the actors act it. You know, and 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 Roger Deakins films it or maybe that's Gordon, whoever, whatever. Like when I see that, that it's not only that I have this biological like I'm not just trying to protect my meat from dying, you know, so it's it's both. And and they're happening at the same time and we can use different levels of inquiry to get at them. You're both laughing at me on the camera. And I'm I think not you're, sure kin- you're no. kidding. You're kidding really hard right now. Kenning, like from Barbie? Yes. No, I just saw I just saw John about to make a joke and I knew it was gonna be something like that. No, no, I was thinking of that scene in Barbie where they've turned Barbie Land into like Kin Kingdom, whatever they call it. <laughs> and like one of the kins is explaining the godfather to one of the Barbies, and she's just like, uh-huh. And like <laughs> I just I happen to have rewatched it recently, so it's top of mind. It is amazing. Okay. It is incredible. I, also, oh, I, I laugh at that because I've done that to Anna Babe. With the and Godfather the, the, the Jay Mascus, yes, yeah, and the okay. Jay Mascus joke. I mean, come on, it was funny. Okay, sorry. I, All right, I, I heard what you were saying. I heard you. Uh-huh. I heard you, Dan. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> this is why you have friends on. I think that it's yeah. <laughs> Dan's like, Dan's like. Most of the time, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have respected. I'm gonna have colleagues who respect me. <laughs> but then sometimes well, I'm gonna bring my friends on. This is. I know myself well enough that this is definitely good for me to have yeah. you guys here giving me pushback but i'm sorry i'm and sorry honestly, to interrupt you guys i just wanted to kind of make no, that that's, connection 
the reason why I believe in God is because Dan has evolved as a person so far as to know what's good for him. Wow. Which is a miracle, honestly. That is itself a miracle. That's yeah. That's how did you survive? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I loved this conversation. True. I think there's. I think. I think there's a lot more. There's obviously we could talk about this for days, and and for me, it's narrative as part of it. Also, just like, just like I think that things that point to the divine and to like it seeking me. Yeah. But, um, but what I'm really excited about is for next week when we do our podcast about why we're all voting for Trump this time. <laughs> mm. oh, is that our first episode Jeez. of Cancel Me Daddy? <laughs> John and I want to start a podcast called Cancel Me Daddy. Yeah. I don't recommend it, uh, but I do yeah. recommend that people check out your guys' music. Our careers are, Dan's like, your careers are already fragile enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Van Dusen, Tyson Motzenbacher, and their uh, your super group telephone friends. Uh, Josh will put links to... Uh, all that music in the show notes, probably Spotify links, but you can find it anywhere you find it. And also a link, uh, Tyson, to your book where the waves turn back. Um, that'll be in the show notes. Even though we didn't talk about it, I would say if people found what you had to say interesting and, and want a, a really very well written story uh, from your voice, they should they should check out the book. And hopefully we will actually get a chance to talk about it at some point. But yeah, we should. Thank you guys so yeah. much for being here. Can I endorse Tyson's book as well really quickly? Please endorse it. That you, you had a couple of thoughts in that book that um, reinforced my belief in God. Wow. Oh, cool. Quite man. sincerely, I was like, wow, that was really beautiful and really well said. So anyways, yeah, you should read the book if you haven't. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Appreciate it. 